Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you this morning. Although I have to confess to you, I am a little sore. I spent the last 48 hours with our student ministry on their retreat. Uh, They have been up at Lake Burton and uh, have had a fantastic time. Their retreat was entitled Fire, Igniting a Passion for Christ and a Passion for What Christ Cares For, All of Creation. And let me tell you, we have some amazing young students. There's a picture, I think, available of some of them that were able to go on this retreat, and um, we just had a fantastic time. I want to give a shout out to my parents. They hosted us at their house. They've been cooking for the crew, and it was phenomenal. I want to give a shout out to to Tammy Knoll. She's done a fantastic job pouring into our students over the weekend. Um, I got to drive the boat, flip some of them out on the tube. It was fantastic. I got to show them up on how to water ski, and let me tell you, it's a little cold in April. I was a few octaves higher when I got out of the water. Um, but they had a great time. And, but the theme, fire, fits really well with where we are in our own time here. And so before we continue further, I just want to give a shout out to all of you. Shout out for showing up in the presence of God this morning. Thank you for those of you that may be joining for the first time today, whether here in person or online, joining us online. And, uh, you know, we're a community committed to what? Sharing in hope, living with purpose for the sake of others. Praise be to God of that. Praise be to God. And uh, so as we continue today, we're going to continue in this series, Empowered to Witness. The, the fact that, that it didn't just stop with Jesus being raised from the dead, praise be to God. But that he promised the gift of God, that is the presence of the Holy Spirit, to set up within us and set us on fire, like our students are experiencing this weekend, to be his witness. And so Anne began to unpack that last week with that, that first proclamation publicly. Some 3,000 people came to Christ that first day. Peter had a debunk that they weren't punch drunk at 9 in the morning and proclaimed the good news, and the church was born. But there's more to it than just proclaiming the word. It is enacting out that word through miracles as well. And that's what we see in the opening of chapter 3. And so that's where I want to draw our attention this morning is chapter 3 of Acts. And I want to read the first 10 verses for us. And if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app or you've got a note-taking app, um, man, we're going to click through a lot of Scripture today. And I encourage you to take notes today because we're going to do a survey of what it means to be empowered to witness through miracles. And so hear God's Word for us this morning. Chapter 3 opens this way. And this is Luke, by the way. This is the Gospel writer Luke. You know, he wrote the Gospel according to Luke, but he wrote a sequel the book of Acts, that's the birth of the church, the work of the Spirit. And he opens chapter 3 this way. One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement 
at what had happened to him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer as we continue in worship this morning. God, I thank you and I praise you for the privilege of this day, for the privilege of being able to enter into your courts, to enter into a time of meditation upon your word. And God, I pray as we open up your word, Lord, that you would present the living word, your son, Jesus Christ, to us and through us. So Holy Spirit, come. Come and move freely in and amongst us. Move even in spite of me so that we might hear what we need to hear and that we might be empowered to to be who you call us to be. And so, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and minds be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. I ask this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and the church said, Amen. 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 Miracles. What are we to make of miracles? Clearly, the early church not only testified to it, but they participated in miracles just as what we read today. But if you were to fast forward some 1,200 years, you'd find an interesting conversation in the church between Pope Innocent II and a young Italian priest named Thomas Aquinas. And Pope Innocent II had this to say. He said to Thomas that, you know, silver and gold, we no longer can say we have none. Because the church had acquired a lot of wealth by the time Thomas Aquinas was living. Thomas Aquinas said something back that has stuck with me. He said, true father, but neither can she say rise and walk. You see, the church had gained a lot financially over the decades, but they had lost something far greater, an understanding of their calling and being able to participate in calling forth miracles, works of God for the people of God into the community Which begs the question, have miracles ceased today? Have you seen a miracle? Have you been a part of a miracle? Do you wonder if they still are part of our witness as a church today? Have you ever wondered what the purpose of a miracle is? Imagine all of us have mixed feelings when it comes to miracles, what we've seen, what we haven't seen, what we wish we had seen. So let us walk through, let's unpack a little bit about miracles and and where we got to start is we got to start with Jesus, don't we? I mean, because you can't look at the gospel accounts. You can't walk through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You cannot look at these four, if you think about it, like cameras in a movie, four different camera angles in on the life of Christ and deny that Jesus was not a miracle-moving man. I mean, he helped the lame to walk, the blind to see, lepers were able to be healed, the oppressed were set free, he fed thousands. He calmed stores to me. He walked on water. And Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb himself. Praise be to God. He is risen indeed. We're Easter people. Amen? Amen. Amen. He is a miracle in the walking. But have you ever stopped to think about why Jesus did these miracles? There's a myriad of reasons. The miracles that we see Jesus participating in. And Let me give you a list of those. Let me give you a list of some of the things and ways we can take away from the miracles that we see Jesus having performed in his own life here now. One of those is because of his compassion, because of God's compassion. If you look at the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, he's been teaching and they're getting hungry. He doesn't want to send them home hangry. So what does he say? We find that he has compassion. He says, let's feed them in Matthew 14. Here's another reason that he brings about miracles is to bring glory to God. 
to literally bring glory to God. If you look at the raising of his friend Lazarus, Mary and Martha are having a snot rag cry out because Lazarus is dead. He's been gone four days. He, he's stinking by this point. But, but Jesus says this is to bring glory to God in John 11 when he says, and he declares, I am the resurrection and life. This is Jesus bringing glory to God in the raising of Lazarus. Here's another reason that he participated in miracles. It was in response to faith. You remember the woman that had hemorrhaged from bleeding for some 12 years? She'd spent every penny that she had going to every kind of doctor that she could go to and could never get a reprieve. And out of desperation, she said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And in the midst of a packed crowd, she does so. And Jesus immediately experiences the power of God, the, the work of the Spirit go out of him. And he said, who touched me? And the disciples were like, you're crazy, dude. I mean, everybody's pressing in on you. It's like a mob. But this woman comes forward, and what does he tell her? He says, your faith has made you well, Matthew 9. Well, it's not just in response to faith, but he also does it to foster faith. Because in, in Mark's gospel, Mark 9, what we find is that there is a father whose son is oppressed by a demon. And this father desperately wants his son to be made well. I mean, this demon's throwing his son on the ground. He's giving him all kinds of physical abuse. And, and he's just desperation. He comes up to Jesus and says, if you could heal him. And Jesus says, if I could heal him. And the father says, I believe. But then he says what? Help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do? He heals. He delivers this young boy in order to foster faith in part. And here's a fifth reason that you see Jesus oftentimes participating in miracles. And let's draw attention to his character and to his power as God incarnate. We find this, like in the healing of the blind man. If you remember, there was a blind man brought to Jesus, and, and the disciples are sitting there like, who sent? Because everything was a cause and effect in their mindset, right? Like, this guy's blind because someone sinned. Either he did or his parents did. And, and Jesus says, none of them do in John 9. But so that the glory of God might be revealed. And then the power of God. And then in doing so, he brings healing there's a couple of other reasons that I see often in these miracles, and one of those is to lead people to repentance, literally to, to turn, to, to grab someone's attention to, to the presence of God and to lead them to turn back to God. And lastly, to demonstrate the inbreaking of God's kingdom. These are just a, a number of reasons why we see Jesus bringing forth healing. You see, Jesus was a miracle worker, amen? No doubt. After all, Jesus is God, incarnate, in flesh. I mean, we, why wouldn't we expect Jesus to bring about miracles, right? But that begs the question, what about the rest of us? What about the disciples, right? The At least I am. I'm a disciple. I'm slow. Maybe y'all aren't as slow as I am. But what do we see? Jesus didn't just perform miracles. He sent his own followers out to do the same thing. We see it first with his 12. In Luke 9, we find Jesus, he's called the 12 together. And he's, we find this, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. That's Luke 9, verse 12. 
But it didn't just stop with the 12. We find later in Luke 10, actually, that he sends out the 72. And he gives them authority to heal the sick and to tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. And guess what? The 72 come back. They're jumping for joy. They're like tripping out. They're like, Jesus, get this. Even demons submit to us in your name. They're mind blown at what they had seen happen. And being obedient to Jesus saying, go out, proclaim the good news. Call forth the healing that God wants to bring about. And it's not just there, but Jesus in his parting words in John 14. You remember what he said to his disciples? He said, hey, you're going to do even what? Greater things. Greater and then upon his resurrection, they're dumbfounded, they're, they're blown away that he is there in, in their presence. And in the opening act of the book of Acts, the Acts of the Spirit, we find Jesus speaking to his disciples. Acts 1-4 begins this way. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever stopped to think about that? You know, when we think about baptism, think about that for a moment. Let me just pause for a moment. We often think about getting wet, don't we? It's also about being set on fire. And not just about being wet, but being set on fire for God, the presence of the Spirit, by baptism, by water and the Spirit. This is what Jesus is talking about, the fulfillment of that baptism with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what do we read? (laughs) Well, indeed, that's what began with the book of Acts, with the birth of the church. We find those some 3,000 people that Jesus brings into his, his fold, if you will, with, with Peter standing up boldly that first day and proclaiming the good news. But then we find, at the very tail end of chapter 2, we find these words. Luke says, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That's Luke 2.43. Listen to that. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And the very first one is the one we read today. But the book of Acts is a compilation of miracles, of moves of God that drew attention, that got people's attention to the move of God that was before them. Let me give you a survey. We're going to do a flyover real quick. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 12 begins, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And it goes on to talk about how they're proclaiming the good news. And in that same conversation, Luke says this, verse 16, Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And get this, and all of them were healed. That's chapter 5. You fast forward to chapter 8, 8, 14, and 17, we find this. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, y'all, if you remember Samaria, Samaria was the half-breeds, right? They were the ones that had intermarried during the exile. And so the good Jews were saying, we can't hang out with you. But that's where Jesus went with the woman at the well, wasn't it? Praise be to God. Beginning to restore her understanding of her identity as a daughter of the Most High. And here, Peter and John are being sent to the very same people. And they pick up this. It says, when they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there. 
that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, they probably just got wet. But they were about to be set on fire. And so what do we find? We said, it says, then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, the miracle of the presence of God setting out residence in their hearts and in their minds. Fast forward again, chapter 19, Peter heals a paralyzed man in one town and raises a young woman from the dead in another. Fast forward again, chapter 12, Peter is freed from prison. How? By an angel, as, the, as those that were gathered praying on his behalf were petitioning to God to deliver Peter, Peter walks out in the dark of night. Everybody else is asleep. And he walks out of prison. Another miracle. And then it's Paul's turn, if you will, as far as Luke capturing what was happening in the early days of the church. That great persecutor of the church who encountered Jesus for himself and was set on fire. We find in chapter 14, Peter heals a cripple from birth in Lystra. In chapter 16, he casts out a demon from a slave woman. In chapter 19, he lays hands on the followers in Corinth and asks for them to receive the Holy Spirit. Luke attests to it this way. He says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. And my favorite of all of them is in chapter 20 because Paul restores a young man that has fallen asleep and fallen flat out of a window to his death. Why? Because if you read the scripture, it says that Paul had gone on preaching on and on and on and on. (laughs) I don't know about y'all, but I'm glad your pews are only about 20 inches off the floor. Because sometimes I have a habit of preaching on and on and on, right? Amen. (laughs) That's right, right? But all these things. All of these, when you survey the book of Acts, when you look at these moves of God, when you look at these things called miracles, because what, what are really miracles? They're, they're, there's something extraordinary. There's something out of the ordinary to draw attention to God. That's ultimately what miracles are about. It's to draw attention. And that's what we see is that all of these miracles were to further the testimony of Jesus Christ risen from the grave and what Jesus can do in our lives. In fact, that's the primary purpose of the one that we read earlier, the one that opens up the miracles that we find in the book of Acts. Peter and John are headed like good Jewish boys to to pray. I mean, there was prayer services morning and afternoon and evening, and, and they're on their way to the temple like they normally would to pray. And on their way, they encounter a lame guy that's at the, the gate called Beautiful. And I was reflecting on this beautiful, it was called beautiful for a reason. It actually faced east. It was made out of bronze. And as the sun rose, it made this brilliant view going into the temple area. But I think what's interesting is to find out that Peter and John, they're on a mission. How many of y'all find yourself day in and day out, you got things to do, you got places to be, you got an agenda you got to get to, right? They're on their way to pray. And what's interesting is to see who takes notice of who first. Peter and John don't take notice of this lame man. It's rather the other way around. It's the lame man that takes notice of them first. And he calls them out expecting something, asking for them. And it left me begging and asking my own self, how often do I go on my way, even after good intentions, and I miss out on opportunities right before my eyes to share the love of God? Peter and John almost missed it. But after this man called out to them, what's equally obvious is that he obviously, this lame man, looked up to them and had basically 
passed on from them, thinking, well, they're just like everyone else that's in a hurry. They're not going to stop. Because what does Peter have to say? Look at us. Look at us. And then he's expecting what he's always expected, some gold, some silver, something to help him get along for that day. And that's a marvelous thing because the Jewish community set apart from the Roman world around it did that often. They took care of their own in ways that the Roman world didn't grasp. And so it was beautiful that that happened. But, but here, Peter and John are having to draw back his attention because he's in some ways almost given up on the fact that they might be able to help him. And Peter says, look at us. But then he goes on to have the audacity to say, gold and silver, I have not. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, walk. And what's equally amazing to me is not only that he would say that, but what is the very next thing that Peter does? He grabs him. He reaches out. He didn't just say this, be blessed, my friend. He called upon the name of Jesus and he reached out with expectation. That Jesus was going to move in that moment and move in that man's life. And sure enough, this man gets up and he begins to walk. And he begins to do the happy dance. I don't know about you, but if I've been lame since birth, I'd be doing the happy dance. But what was really remarkable is what does he end up doing? He ends up praising God. Praising God. You, You see, the focus for that lame man was not on what just happened, but on who just showed up. That's what miracles are. It's a sign that points to a source. And so often we get focused on the sign, not the source. This man got it right. He was praising God. And the crowd took notice. And we find that the crowd gathers around. And if you fast forward a little bit in verse 316, you find this, that by faith in the name of Jesus, this is Peter talking to the crowd, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. You see, the point of miracles is not the miracle itself, but rather to point to the source of the miracle, Jesus. The point of miracles, both then and now, is to provide an opportunity to witness to the good news of Jesus and to draw others into his saving faith and relationship with him. You see, the point of miracles is not just for the person who receives the miracle. But for those who take notice of the miracle and begin to inquire, what's up? What's going on here? And the reality is that Jesus empowers each and every one of us to be his witness. And part of that is to choose to participate in calling forth the miraculous work of God in this world. You know, it's said well this way. It's been said miracles then and now are short-term solutions. But they point to a long-term reality that God's kingdom is real. Let me say that again. Miracles then and now are short-term solutions, but they point to a long-term reality that God's kingdom is real. That that promise that there will be a day when there's no more sorrow and there are no more tears will be a reality. But we don't have to wait for that day because what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is where? In heaven that we can call forth and participate in the kingdom of God breaking in to our time, and to our day. This is what miracles are all about. But if you're like me, you can confirm that not everyone that has desired a miracle or has prayed for someone to experience a miracle has experienced a miracle, right? 
I mean, pray for that as we don't have a bunch of 500-year-old geriatrics walking around with us today. Right? Miracles are a holy mystery. Miracles are of God. And, and, and sometimes that can discourage us from thinking that miracles happen when we don't see them in the way that we expect them to. That maybe we're putting God in a box. Maybe we're putting God on our terms rather than coming to Him on His terms. Because the truth of the matter is, miracles are happening today. Each of you is a miracle. The faith you hold is a miracle. The faith you can grab a hold of is a miracle. You know, I'll never forget my first experience with witnessing a miracle take place. I was in my early 20s. I was on the back end of my time at Auburn. I was on a mission trip in Venezuela. And and we spent about three weeks there, and the first half of it is on the Caporo River. It's down near Columbia border, and it is in this rural, remote area, and we're using bow and arrows shooting electrical lines up through the trees to create a radio system so we could communicate from village to village whenever there was an outbreak of a disease or something, and we were building out Sunday school rooms and playing soccer, and let me tell you, they play with a, a really small, but very hard soccer ball, and I was goalie. It didn't feel good. But the second half of the trip, we moved upriver to this small town. And, and, and town, town's a modest word for that, um, maybe overstating it some. But we were building a parsonage for the pastor that was really going to evangelize and minister to all of these villages that were connected through communications now up and down the river. And while we were there, we had two ladies that would cook for us because us Westerners got, kind of got weak stomachs. And, and they were making sure that what we ate was safe to eat. And I, even with that, I got sick. You know, just, that's just the way it worked. But, but toward the back end of that, what, what you don't know was going on in the backdrop was there was riots happening in Caracas. All the doctors had gone on strike. There was no modern medicine to be found in all of Venezuela the time that we were there. Praise be to God, no one died. But in that time, this young woman had a very, she had an infant, and the infant got deathly sick. I'm talking days on end, being sick and with a high fever, fever would not break. She comes to one of our worship gatherings at night, having you know, heard and witnessed kind of what we've been doing over the last several weeks, and, and she said, I'm preparing to take my, my young baby to a witch doctor. She's about to resort to that because she didn't think she had any other options. And one of the, the, the persons in our group said, well, can we, can, can we pray for your baby? And, and she said yes. And we had translators because I didn't understand Spanish. She didn't understand English. But she and that baby gathered in the middle of our group. And all of us gathered around and we began to pray. And in that moment, any of y'all that have ever had a baby that's been sick, there is desperation. You don't know what to do, right? I mean, especially first-time parents, you don't know what to do. <laughs> You're like, I'm clueless. But then when you see them sick or hurting, you'll do anything. You'll move mountains for them to be well. And, and out of desperation, we saw her there. But as we began to pray, you could almost see a, a palpable peace come over this mom. Physical peace. And later that night, the fever broke. And that baby was healed. Praise be to God. And I have no doubt that that woman today is still testifying 
to how God showed up in that moment for her, in a, in a, a moment of desperation. And God showed up. And I'm here to tell you today that I have seen, I have heard, and I have participated in countless miracles, works of God from that day to this day. It doesn't always happen, but they do happen. They do indeed happen. But having told you that, I also know that we live in a Western world, and sadly, we live in a post-enlightened, post-modern mindset. And we often don't see miracles, at least we don't testify to the miracles that are happening like our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world today. There are volumes of testimonies to miracles that are happening every day today across the world, but oftentimes we don't see it. And I can't help but wonder if the question is not so much whether miracles still occur today, but rather, are we truly looking for them? Are you truly looking for them? Better yet, are, are we praying for them? Or do we fear what others might think if we would actually would pray for God to move in a certain way and to intervene in life here and now? Jack Deere wrote a book. Uh, it's called Why I'm Still Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. And this guy was somewhat um, a skeptic in faith, came to faith, but then he would go on to, to be a professor and a pastor. And he not only bought into, but he taught that miracles were something of the past. I mean, he, he would teach generations of people that miracles are something of the past. They don't happen today until he became one. And he began to see it happen over and over again. And this is a, a, a rewriting of a book that he wrote some 30 years earlier where he began to testify to a move of God and miracles that he'd seen. And 30 years later, he wrote a secondary compilation of it. I encourage you to read this book. But he, he said this. He says, The biggest difference between the first century church and the modern church in the Western world is that the first century church was a praying church. We are a talking church. Sobering, isn't it? He would go on to say, The power of the first century church lay not in their purity or their intelligent strategies, but in their prayers. In their prayers. You see, if you look just past what we read today in the opening healing of Peter and John and this lame man, what you'll find is a lot of what happens today, the, the naysayers come around, right? And we were talking about this with our youth on this retreat because they are in an immense place, peer pressure-wise, especially in the public school system. And every single one of them that went on this retreat were in the public school system. They said, I can't share my faith because it gets shoved back down my throat or I get threatened or this or that. The same thing happened back then. Peter and John got called in to the principal's office. Sanhedrin, if you will, the religious then. Question. The same people that had shouted crucify and, and planned to have Jesus crucified are interrogating Peter and John. And they rough them up and they tell them to shut up. And they send them on the way. And a lot of times I think that's where we sit today. As we get quiet, we get silenced. But let me tell you where they went. They went back to the rest of the followers. And they began to pray. And in Acts 4, 30, we find these words. This is their prayer. Listen to this prayer. 
Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They didn't stop there. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Church, what if we prayed that prayer? What if you began to pray that prayer? What if our students began to pray that prayer? What if we as a community began to pray that prayer? What might happen? I don't want us to miss that opportunity today. I want that to be what we're about as a church. We have nights of prayer once a month. We have a prayer team that commits to praying weekly on the prayer requests. But what about us as a collective body? The earlier service, I, I, I took a risk, and I, and I named one of the congregants in our, in our midst that needs prayer, and Lyra, Lyra Veal. But in this service... I'm going to ask the praise team to come up and pray, and I'm going to ask y'all, I'm going to be bold enough to ask, would y'all, would y'all gather in groups of three or four, and would you pray for Ronnie Cothran? And if you don't know the backstory of Ronnie Cothran, he was shot 15-some-odd years ago, and he's paralyzed. He's in his 50s now. The guy's overcome cancer. He's had jobs before, that he's now relegated to living with his parents. His parents are amazing caregivers but he has a bone infection and he has kidney stones that they can't operate on right now the man needs a move of God upon his life to lift up his spirits would you be willing to do that with me praise team would you come up and play church would you be willing to pray and not just for Ronnie but as I look around, I imagine many of you have prayers on your heart. Broken relationships that you desire to see restored. You have people that have unbelief that you desire to see come into the fold and to believe in the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. You might have others in your life that are sick. Let's not miss the opportunity as we continue in worship. So get together with two or three others. You don't have to pray out loud if, you don't, if you're not comfortable. But would you gather as a church? Let's be in Acts 3 and 4, church. Let's pray forth that God would move today in the life of the loved ones around us. Not for our glory, but for His. And to draw others unto Him. That's the whole purpose, isn't it? So gather up, stand up, gather up with individuals. Let's, let's pray as a church together. I'll close this time in collective prayer, but would you just gather with two or three others and pray for one another and pray for Ronnie. Let's do that now.